Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. That's what we'll be preaching on. And while we're turning there, I want you to think about this. That at the end of history, very end of history, all of humanity are going to be gathered together to stand before Jesus Christ. Every single person who has ever lived will be gathered together standing before Jesus. Which means that you, every single one of us in this room, you will be there at the end of history standing before Jesus Christ. Now here's why, and here's what that means. From eternity past, Jesus Christ has always been fully God, with no beginning, equal to God the Father in every way. But Jesus knew that the only way we could be forgiven, we've, we've rebelled against him, we've turned our backs upon God, we've sinned against God grievously, and Jesus knew that the only way we could be forgiven is if he humbled himself to become a man and then lowered himself to death, sinless Jesus being punished in our place for our sins. He knew that, and he loved us, he cared about us, loved you, cared about you, and he became a man, and he went to the cross and was punished in our place for our sins. And, and then God raised him up from the dead. Then Jesus ascended into heaven, and since then he has been working through the church to lead lost men and women from every nation, tongue, and tribe to faith in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of their sins, and being reconciled to God. That's what's going on right now. He's working through the church to do that. And then at the end of history, Jesus Christ is going to return. And God will summon, gather, every human being who's ever lived together to stand before Jesus Christ. And God will call every one of us, every human being who's ever lived to bow the knee before Jesus. And God will call everyone who's ever lived to confess Jesus as Lord, the one who's worthy of all glory and all praise and, and all honor. And because what God commands, what God summons happens, everyone will bow and everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. And you're going to be there. And the reason God has you here this morning is because he wants you to know about that ahead of time. Some of you may not be trusting Jesus Christ this morning as your Lord, as your Savior, as your treasure. And God loves you, and he's brought you here this morning to, to warn you that the day is coming when you will stand before Jesus and you will see him honored as the Lord of all. And if you are trusting Jesus this morning, God loves you. And he's had you be here this morning because he wants to strengthen you and comfort you and fill you with the glorious, hope-giving truth that the day is going to come when you will stand before Jesus and you will see your Jesus, your Savior, honored as Lord forever. That day's coming. Now, what you should be asking at this point is, 
where's that in the Bible? We're going to be a church. The Bible's what's most important here. And let me show you. Philippians chapter 2. It's right here. Let's read what Paul says. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Here's what Paul writes. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So there it is. Now, last week we studied verses 5 through 7, This week, we're going to dig into verses 8 through 11. And notice at the beginning of verse 8, Paul says Jesus was found in human form, which means he became a man. So just a little bit of review, dig a little deeper. Why did Jesus, being fully God, choose to become man? And the answer is in verse 8. Let's read all of verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. There's his purpose even death on a cross. So understand this. Jesus chose to become a man so that he could die on the cross. Became a man so that he could die. Now, here's some background. Verse 6, Paul says that Jesus had equality with God, which means he was equal to God the Father in every way, fully God. So just like God the Father, Jesus had existed from eternity past with no beginning. There was never any time when Jesus was not And just like the Father, Jesus is infinite in power, sovereign over everything, and forever, just like the Father, he's been full of joy in the fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So from eternity past, Jesus has always been fully God. But there's a problem. We've all rebelled against God, knowingly turned our backs upon him. And it's easy for us to think that Well, sin isn't very serious. What's so serious about sin? But but see, the Bible teaches that sin dishonors God's infinite glory. Now, let me explain that so you see how serious sin is. Go way back to creation. When God created the the world and the universe, and and he gave us these amazing bodies, and he gave us life, God showed clearly that he is all powerful, flawlessly wise and completely good and loving. He showed us that through creation. And so it's clear, we have every reason to trust him completely and to obey him instantly and happily. Because God showed us he's all-powerful, flawlessly wise, perfectly good, every reason to trust him, every reason to obey him. And yet all of us have knowingly rebelled against God. And when we sin against God, we are proclaiming God is not good. God is not wise. He does not know what he's doing. 
You can't trust God. And so every sin deeply dishonors God. Here's an example. Recently, I had a day when I just had a ton to get done, a lot to do. And I had my day, I thought pretty well planned out. You know how you do that, how to get all this stuff done. And so I, I got into my day, started working away, and then, boom, big interruption came. Ah, okay, so, all right. Take care of this interruption, took, took some time, got it done, delayed in my schedule. All right, back at it. I got to pick it up a little bit here. Boom, another interruption, second interruption. Okay, took time. Third interruption. Okay, now, here, here's the deal. In God's word, he has told us clearly that he is in sovereign control of every interruption you'll ever face. And in his love and goodness, you can trust him that every interruption that comes is a gift from God. It's a gift. And so if we're trusting God, then, and if I was trusting God, then I would have said, I can be at peace about these interruptions. God, you're in control. You love me. You know better than me what's going on. I should have been completely at peace, completely patient. Was I completely at peace and completely patient? No, I was not. To my shame, I was not. In my pride and arrogance, I, I chose to think that I know better how my day should operate. And so what I was declaring to everybody in my impatience was that God can't be trusted. God is not good. God does not know what he's doing. My impatience deeply dishonored God's glory. And that's true of, of every sin that we commit. Deeply dishonors, desecrates God's glory. Now, now here's why that is so serious. Try to think of an illustration of like glory and majesty. And I thought about the Queen of England, okay? UK people. Think of all the, I mean, after centuries, all the glory and majesty that's residing in the person, the position, the, the office of, of king or queen of England. If you think about the queen of England, there's glory there. There's majesty there. You feel that? Now imagine a parade coming by, ceremony, very serious and honoring of, of the queen, of you know, soldiers first, and then, and then the queen of England coming by, followed by soldiers, and imagine somebody on the side of the road scooping up a handful of mud and throwing it at her splatters the Queen of England. Everybody would be shocked and horrified and furious. And rightly so. Because this person has desecrated something that is glorious and majestic and honorable. You feel that? God has infinitely more glory than the Queen of England. Infinitely more. And when we sin against God, we are dishonoring infinite glory. So as I was impatient and saying with my attitude, God isn't good, God isn't in control, he can't be trusted, I was scooping up mud from the side of the road and splattering it on God. That's what our sin is. So think and just think, how many times I, how many times you have dishonored God's glory in our lives? And God is perfectly just. He's slow to anger. He's patient, but he's just. And he must punish our sin. 
God's wrath must be satisfied. And, and think about how you know, the punishment must fit the crime. That's how justice works. So here in Abu Dhabi, if you drive past the speed limit and the cameras catch you, okay, um, you'll pay a fine, monetary fine, small crime, small, small punishment, right? If you kill someone, depending on what country you're from and where it happens, you'll either be in prison for the rest of your life or you will be killed. Much more serious crime. Much more serious punishment. But when we desecrate and dishonor God's infinite glory, because His glory is infinite, the crime is infinite. And so the punishment must be infinite. So we have all been guilty of infinite guilt, which is why hell is infinite. And the only way we could be forgiven then is if God, Jesus God the Son, lowered himself to become a man and then humbled himself to the point of the cross because that is an infinite punishment, not in time, but in degree. In those hours, infinite punishment was being paid because it was infinite lowering from God to man to the cross because God's infinite in glory. And that's what Jesus did for us. In great love and great mercy, he became a man, went to the cross, and he suffered on the cross so we could be forgiven. That's why Jesus chose to become a man. So with that in mind, read verse 8 again. That's what Paul is saying. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now notice those last five words, even death on a cross. Paul wants to make sure we get that. Death, yes, but even this kind of death, death on a cross. Paul's readers would have known what crucifixion was because they lived in a Roman colony. And crucifixion was a Roman invention of the worst way they could think of, the most horrifying way, the most painful way somebody could be put to death. And so his readers had seen crucifixions take place. We haven't, thankfully, seen that. But to understand what Jesus experienced, let me spell out for you some of what it meant. So what did it mean for Jesus to die on the cross? First of all, the framework we have to have to understand the cross is that at any moment through this whole process, Jesus could have called a halt to the whole thing. Remember in Matthew 26, Jesus said, I could call 12 angels, 12 legions of angels right now, and they would deliver me. He never stopped being God. At any moment, he could have called a halt to the whole thing. So Jesus was not a helpless victim. Things happening to him that were outside of his control. He chose to move ahead at each step. He chose every step of the cross to take place. So first, Jesus was scourged. Whip with pieces of rock and glass embedded in the strands in order to tear open the flesh of the person being whipped. And I believe that it was 39 lashes, one less than what they thought would be fatal. But so imagine the, just the, the horrifying shock of pain after that first lash came upon Jesus' back. And at that point, 
He could have stopped the whole thing. But he loved you. God's wrath hadn't been satisfied yet. The debt hadn't been paid yet. And so he stayed. Stayed. Then the soldiers blindfolded him. They beat him like only battle-hardened soldiers could beat someone. And again, at any moment, Jesus could have stopped it, gone back to heaven. No. But Jesus, at every second, chose to continue. Let them beat me. And they beat him. Why did Jesus continue? It's because he loved you because the debt hadn't been paid yet. Then they took him to a public hilltop and, and they laid him down on the cross, stripped him bare, laid him down on the cross, took a long nail and a hammer and they nailed one wrist to one side of the beam and then another nail and the other wrist to the other side of the beam and then his feet to the upright. He loved us and he stayed. He allowed them, he allowed them to do that because he loved us and he wanted us to be saved. He loved you and he wanted you to be saved. This is, this is our Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 20, I live by faith in Jesus who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that's true for you. And they raised up the cross and dropped it into a, into a hole. And the reason the cross I mean, one reason the cross was so horrifyingly painful was because the only way you could breathe in that position was by pushing up on your feet on the nail and pulling up on the nails in your wrist. That's the only way you could take a breath. Each breath, costly pain, excruciating pain. Think of five minutes of that, 30 minutes of that, three hours of that, and again, Jesus was not a helpless victim. It's not poor Jesus. He chose to be there because he loves us, because he wanted to save us. Now, as horrifying as all of this is, there was something else even worse that we have a harder time wrapping our minds around. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, but he cried out at one point, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus knew why. It's because of our sin. He was there for a reason. But he quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the point he's making is he is praying this psalm of lament. This is a biblical way to sorrow. And he's saying, You've forsaken me. You've abandoned me. And the Father had Sinless Jesus had the sin, our sins placed upon him, and the Father's wrath, God's wrath against our sin was being poured out upon Jesus. And Jesus, who for eternity had known the joy of fellowship with the Father, unbroken fellowship with the Father, now the fellowship had been broken because God's wrath was being poured, about, poured out upon him for our sakes. And finally, after six hours, Jesus cried out. 
Remember what he cried out? It is finished. It is finished. And he died. So Jesus humbled himself to become a man. And he suffered horribly on the cross for us who'd rebelled, who were in rebellion against him. So think about this, church. Who loves like that? Who loves like that? What other love in the universe comes even close to being like that? I mean, what, what else in the universe, what other being in the universe even comes close to being as awesome and as beautiful and as heartbreaking and as glorious as that? No one. Nothing. Just our Jesus. Our Jesus. That's why I said last week, the cross is the center of history. The, the massively most important event. Massively most beautiful, glorious, heartbreaking, majestic event in history. No one, nothing comes close. Jesus Christ is the most glorious being in the universe because of that. Now, there, there may be a theological question in your mind at this point with what I just said. And you might wonder, okay, isn't, isn't God the Father the most glorious being in the universe? And that's a really good question to ask. And the answer is yes. We love questions here, okay? Theological questions are very important. God the Father is the most glorious reality in the universe. But remember, we're not talking about three gods here. One God, three persons. And God the Father... We can't see God the Father. We can't see his love. God's invisible, 1 Timothy, right? Because he's everywhere. So we can't see God the Father. So what did God the Father do? He sent the Son in flesh and blood, visible flesh and blood, so we could see what the Father's like, miracles, love, caring for children, mercy, calling out the hypocrites, justice, and the cross. So God the Father sent Jesus the Son so we could see his love, his glory. And by the way, also, we can't feel God the Father's love. And so God sent the Spirit who, when you put your trust in Jesus, comes to dwell inside of you. And by the Spirit, you can feel and experience the very love and presence of God because the third person of the Trinity is indwelling you. So Jesus Christ is the most glorious being in the universe because as God the Son... He is displaying the very glory and majesty of God the Father. And so Jesus is the most glorious being in the universe, as is God the Father and God the Spirit. So Jesus is the most glorious reality in the universe. Okay, but at this point in the story, it's hard to see that glory. All you see is a bloody, mangled corpse buried in a tomb. But God didn't let the story end there. I love verses 9 through 11. What did God the Father do? Verses 9 through 11. Therefore, therefore, underline that word in your Bible. This is so powerful. Therefore, because of what Jesus did, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, 
every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's what God the Father did. First, God highly exalted him. Jesus had lowered himself to become a man and lowered himself to the point of the cross. God the Father highly exalted Jesus. Reversed the lowering. Highly exalted him. Raised him from the dead. Had him ascend into heaven. Seated him at his right hand showing that Jesus is equally, equal to the Father in sovereignty, majesty, glory as, as God the Son. Then we read that God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is that name? Verse 11. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is who? Lord. So the name that is above every name is Lord. And because it's the name above every name, it's a reference to the fact that Jesus is fully God. Deserving of all glory. All honor, all majesty, infinitely exalted above everything that is. And then why does God highly exalt Jesus and give him the name that's above every name? Notice the words, so that, at the beginning of verse 10. It is so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And Paul wants to make sure we understand that that word every means every. So he says every knee in heaven, which refers to all the angels bowing before Jesus. On earth, which refers to every human being who's ever lived, bowing the knee before Jesus. And under the earth, which refers to all the demons and Satan himself, bowing the knee before Jesus. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So every angel, every human being, every demon, Satan himself will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, at this point, you should have another question in your mind. Does that mean everybody's going to be saved? And the answer is no. Because this event of, of everybody gathered before Jesus, knees bowing, confessing, Paul describes the exact same event in Romans 14. Don't turn there now, but this afternoon, look at Romans 14. And from the way Paul describes that event, it's clear that he's describing the final judgment where both believers and unbelievers will be there. Both believers and unbelievers will be present at that time. And believers will be bowing the knee with joy, and unbelievers and demons and Satan with, as Jesus said, weeping and gnashing of teeth because they know the punishment that awaits them. Okay, but so just get this picture though. All of humanity gathered before Jesus. Jesus comes back at the end of history. God the Father summons all of humanity. And when God says, come, everybody's there. Because what God says happens. And then he says, bow the knee. And because what God says happens, every human being bows the knee. Some willingly some unwillingly and with weeping and gnashing of teeth. But I just thought, think of that. It means every member of ISIS will bow the knee before Jesus Christ. Every bloodthirsty warlord in Sudan bowing the knee before Jesus. Every neighbor that you have bowing the knee before Jesus. Every 
buddy at your workplace, your manager, bowing the knee before Jesus. Every knee will bow. And what this means is that you will be there and you will bow the knee before Jesus. Now, what you will feel at that moment and experience at that moment depends on how you've responded to Jesus in this life now before he returns. It all depends upon how we've responded now. Those who've already trusted Jesus, who've already trusted him as your Savior and submitted your life to him, you will gladly, I mean, just, just picture it. You'll see your Jesus there, okay? Your Savior. And you know, he became a man, died on the cross, endured all of that, chose to endure all of that because he loved you and because he wanted you to be forgiven and he saved you through the cross. And, and you will gladly bow before him to honor him with your submission. Yes, right? And you will gladly, probably with, with a shout, Jesus Christ, you are Lord. You are Lord. There will be this resounding, you are Lord, you are Lord, you are Lord. All the believers just shouting with joy. That'll be your experience. Okay, but for those who haven't trusted Jesus as Savior, who have not submitted your life to him as Lord, you'll be there bowing and confessing unwillingly and with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the reason God has you here this morning to hear that is because he loves you. He wants you to know this ahead of time. He's calling you to bow your knee before Jesus now. Look at Jesus. Look at what he's done. Look at his love and his compassion and his care for you. Look at Jesus Christ. Bow the knee before him. Confess him as Lord from your heart gladly now. Submit your life gladly before him to honor him and worship him now. That's what God's calling you to do. And, and the moment you do that, you'll be forgiven for all of your sin. God's power will come into your life and start to change you. God will pour his love into your heart by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And for the first time, you will feel the very presence of God, his very love. For the first time, your heart will be full and satisfied. You'll be saved. You'll be forgiven. And you'll look forward then to this day when Jesus comes back and all of humanity will be gathered you look forward to the day when you can gladly, with all the redeemed from every nation, tongue, and tribe, bow your knee before Jesus Christ and declare him as Lord, worthy of all praise, all glory, and all honor. Trust Christ today. Bow your knee before Jesus today. God brought you here today because he loves you and he wanted you to know this ahead of time. Now, this morning, we're going to move into communion. This is a perfect passage. See why I thought it would be helpful to have communion after the message. So let's have the worship team come on up. And this is a perfect way to respond to what Paul has told us in Philippians chapter 2. Because communion is instituted by Jesus. 
as a, as a way for his followers to remember Jesus' death on the cross. He calls us, his followers, to regularly gather together and to eat bread, which is a picture of his broken body, and to drink the cup, which is a picture of his shed blood, and to come together to do that to remember Jesus died. Remember, our Savior died. Remember, he loves us. We can trust him. Look at what he did for us. We can trust him. So it's a time for us to remember Jesus' death. So communion is not for sinless people. I always want to remind us of that because none of us are sinless here. Communion is for sinful people who are trusting Jesus Christ as our only hope, our only Savior, our only forgiveness, our only righteousness. We're not trusting our own goodness at all because we aren't. It doesn't count. It doesn't make any difference. We're trusting Jesus Christ alone as our Savior, our Lord, and our treasure. Communion's for you if that's what's in your heart. Now, if you're not yet trusting Jesus Christ, like I said, we're glad you're here. And I would encourage you not to come up and partake of communion. That, that wouldn't be the appropriate thing to do. But, but take this time during the music just to sit there and, and think about God creating you. Think about God showing you how trustworthy he is. Think about your sin against God and about what Jesus did so you could be forgiven. Think about your need for forgiveness and the love of Jesus in providing forgiveness on the cross. And we pray that this morning would be the morning when you would respond to what he's done and put your trust in him. So here's how we're going to do this. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move into two more worship songs. And during those two songs, come on up and take the bread and the cup, and then go back to your seat. And don't partake yet. I'll come up after the second song and lead us. And help the traffic go well. Let's come down the center aisle. Let's not come down the side aisle. Let's come down the center aisle. And then go on both sides of the table. Okay, both sides of the table, and then go back that far aisle, and then you can circulate back over here. Okay? Let's pray together. Father, would you pour out your Spirit upon us right now? Open our eyes so we can see more clearly the cross, what you've done through Christ. I pray for each of us, Lord, that we would be able to bow afresh our knees before you. Confess afresh that you are Lord as we remember your death on the cross. Come and work in a powerful way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.